Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What's going on, everybody? And welcome in to another edition of B-Shape Daily. I'm Brendan Schaefer here with you on... What day is it? Friday, June 17th. So smooth, as always. Welcome into the show as we're here to break down, unfortunately, a Cardinals loss. Game one of their series at Fenway Park in Boston on Friday. 6-5 to five to the Red Sox. The Cardinals mounted a, a bit of a comeback in the ninth inning. It was not enough to overcome... The deficit there as the Cardinals could only score four runs in the ninth inning. They trailed 6-1 at at their worst in this game, and they come up with a four-run ninth, but you know what? They needed number five. Game ends with Paul Goldschmidt standing at home plate, contemplating a 96-mile-per-hour fastball from Tanner Houck, the former Mizzou guy. Pains me to say it. Didn't need him to get that strikeout of Paul Goldschmidt in that moment, did we? But I thought that final at-bat by Goldschmidt was very compelling. A lot to dive in with that. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Adam Wainwright. Pretty good outing by him, but sort of unravels a little bit there in the seventh inning. Let's a base runner on, and that's when Ollie Marmel decides to go to his bullpen. And we'll talk about the decision that Ollie Marmel made in that moment, going with TJ McFarland instead of maybe somebody else. A lot of people on Cardinals Twitter were saying anybody else. I don't care who it is as long as it's not that guy in the year 2022 where he just has not been successful in those moments with inherited runners. And we'll talk about what we thought about that decision. Oftentimes that ends up being a major topic of conversation when Cardinals bullpen has a misstep late in a game and then you see the Cardinals come back and it's like, oh, the offense mounted a rally, mounted a charge. But then you look back into that seventh inning and say, had they done something different there, would we be talking about a different result to this game? Because you end up giving up three runs in the seventh. If you hadn't done that, maybe things turn out differently after the type of rally that the team was capable of providing in the ninth. So all of that we'll get into in today's episode. Appreciate you guys for joining me for this one. Make sure to subscribe to B-Shape Daily if you haven't done so before. I'd love to have you on board. B-Shape Daily can be found on Spotify, but if you have an iPhone, a lot of people do. Apple Podcasts is a great place to find us. And there's always Google Podcasts, lots of other options as well. You can go to anchor.fm slash bshafer12 in your web browser and click on the More Platforms button, and you'll find all the places that carry B-Shape Daily. And if you subscribe to Brendan Schaefer on YouTube, I, I tend to post some videos there as well with the audio from the podcast. So, That's something I'm looking to kick up a little bit more in the summer of 2022. Have kind of just been doing it as a trial run so far. But uh, jump on over, search my name on YouTube, and you can subscribe to my channel there if you'd like to do so. But lots of Cardinals content coming the rest of the way this season. So if you like Cardinals content, B-Shape Daily is the place to be. Let's dive into this game as Cardinals start off the road trip in a little bit of an unfortunate way. As Michael Waka, former Cardinal, got the best of Adam Wainwright in this one. Walker looked pretty good. Cardinals didn't get a whole heck of a lot done against him. And the Red Sox 
removed Waka in the sixth inning. He pitched into the sixth. Five and a third just gives up the one run. It was an Arenado homer over the Green Monster, which is a – I mean, Cardinals lose this game, sure, but take away something positive. It's Nolan Arenado getting that homer. That guy's got to get going. I think for the long run of this team to be able to get to where they want to go, he's got to be able to be a big part of that and probably a bigger part of this offense than you than I would say he's been so far this season. After tonight's game, which was a good one for him, two for three, had the homer, also reached base via walk, so on base three times. You like to see that. Still, the numbers don't really jump off the page at you. 840 OPS, a 276 batting average for Nolan Arenado. Again, you don't really worry too much about the batting average in modern baseball, but you look at, okay, what's the on base and what's the slugging, and that's what makes up the OPS, so that's why that's a number. You'll hear me talk about OPS quite a bit when I do these podcasts because it's a quick way as we're talking about a lot of different players and trying to get to dissect as much as we can. Sometimes I might just throw out the OPS and just give you an idea. If it's over 800, you're doing pretty good, but Nolan Arnato has higher standards than that. Right. And again, the OPS went up today. It was 818. Now it's 840 after a pretty good day at the office. But you look at his numbers last year in St. Louis, 807. And then we'll we'll kind of throw out the 2020 season. That was his final year in Colorado. It's the only year since 2015 in which he was not an all-star. That was a 738 OPS season for Nolan. Pretty far below his career norms, though. You look prior the the four years that he had from 2016 to 2019, OPS was above 900 considerably in every year. 932 was the low. And so that's really the prime years of his career where he started to get going. And he was consistent. 932, 959, 935, 962 on OPS. And that's pretty generally MVP territory. You're going to end up in the top five or six as he did in each of those years in the MVP voting with numbers like that. But the 807, pretty precipitous decline in 2021 for Nolan. And that's why despite the home run numbers, 34, and the RBI numbers, 105 for him last year, that's why you hear a lot of talk about that Nolan in the offseason really worked to try and improve, to try and get better and get back to some of those career norms that he had experienced when he was with the Rockies. And at the beginning of this season, he was player of the month in the National League in April. I kind of thought, yeah, this is it. This is the Nolan that we're going to see. He's been going through a little bit of a slide, though, throughout the month of May and even to an extent in June. And so to see him be able to have a good game tonight, hopefully that's something he can build upon because if he's going in the middle of the lineup the way he can, along with guys like Goldsmith who have been really, really good, maybe not so much on the last pitch of the ball game on Friday, but you're going to probably have to give him a pass every once in a while. He can't always be the hero. But Goldsmith going the way that he has, Arenado getting to where he's capable. If guys like Brendan Donovan continue to perform the way that he has, I just don't know how much you can – Expect that to remain, but he was on base again twice tonight and had the big RBI double, two RBI double, I should say, in the ninth inning to extend that rally. His OPS is over 900 right now. And Tommy Edmonds has been really good up at the top. So if Arnado can get into that groove in the middle of the order and, and kind of solidify that top four, I yeah, you always want contributions from the lower half of the lineup, but those top four could probably do a lot of damage on their own. And Nolan's got to be a big part of that, I think, for the Cardinals to ultimately get where they want to go, not just in terms of can they hold off the Brewers in the division, but can they get things to actually happen when you get to October, when you get to the playoffs? Can they avoid one of those early round exits that they've had now two years in a row? So good to see that from Nolan, but from the rest of the team tonight, obviously he didn't get the win. Wainwright ends up having an an outing of 
you know, again, pitches into the seventh, which you like, gives up four earned runs overall. Got a lot of ground balls. Ollie Marmel said after the game that he was pleased with that. Did give up seven hits, only the one walk, five strikeouts. His ERA sits at 3.06 after tonight's game, and he was the losing pitcher. He's on the downside for the Cardinals in this one because the Cardinals, again, were not quite able to finish off that comeback effort in the ninth inning. But the seventh inning is when Wainwright runs into a little bit more trouble once again and ends up getting removed from the game before being able to work himself out of it. With one out in the seventh inning, after a leadoff double by Frenchie Cordero, he got Christian Vasquez to ground out. Cordero advanced to third base. And that's when TJ McFarland comes in and gets the ground ball that he was looking for. But with the shift, it was kind of through the hole at shortstop. Jackie Bradley Jr. ends up successful in that regard as he allows that run to come home and score off of McFarland. And now you've got McFarland on the mound with that three batter minimum in effect. He's going to have to stay in that inning for a couple more batters. And neither of those batters go very well. Bobby Dalbick hits a double, and Rafael Devers. One of the more underrated players in the game gets a base knock. And that's all she wrote for Teach. So he gives up a base hit to Jackie Bradley on a grounder. That's the thing that you're trying to do if you're TJ McFarland, as Marmel said after the game. Not a great pitch to Daldick on a 1-0 count. Balls hit hard. That's a double. Devers gets a base hit. It's more of a chopper. Again, wasn't hit particularly hard. But it was enough to drive in two more runs, and that was all she wrote on T.J. McFarland. Three batters faced, one inherited runner around a score, three hits allowed, no outs recorded, and two earned runs of his own to have to manage with. And so his ERA, which was over seven when the day began, ends up around 7.7. And Nick Whitgren comes in, doesn't allow that inherited runner to score. But the damage there had already been done by T.J. McFarland. And so there's a little bit to dissect with this situation because I saw some people on Twitter that were upset with the way that Marmol managed the bullpen in that spot. And I think there's some merit to some of the criticism against Marmol there, but maybe not all of it. It just depends on the way that you anticipated or, or thought they should go with this situation, which guy on third one out. Okay, so let me, let me start at the beginning here. Here's my number one rule for this spot, that if you were on Twitter and you were upset about this particular thing, I think you're wrong. And there, I really don't need to spend a whole lot of time debating it because you're just, it's just it's a, it's a losing battle. It's an argument you're not going to win. If you were sitting there thinking, why didn't they bring in Ryan Helsley or Giovanni Gallegos or Genesis Cabrera to try to get out of that situation with a runner on third and one out, you're 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 playing a losing game. That's just not something that Ali Marmol can do in that situation in June. Even directly after an off day, because the Cardinals were off on Thursday. I get that part of it. So everybody should be pretty well rested. You just aren't going to waste one of your big three relievers. And and we know what big three means on this team because you pretty much only have three now that Palante is in the starting rotation. You've got three guys that you trust. That's pretty much it right now for the St. Louis Cardinals. And you're just not going to use one of those three because it's such a limited number. You can't use one of those guys in a 3-1 ball game when there's already a runner on third and one out. I'm not saying that you can't make a good-hearted effort to strand that runner at third, but with one out, a fly ball gets the job done. That run's probably already going to score, in my mind. So it's just not worth it because you don't know that the offense is going to come back 
and make a game of it. And if you've used one of your big relievers, then it kind of feels like you ought to use another to try to really, you've already invested in this game more than, you know, you're kind of underwater a little bit with using one of your prime relievers, knowing that that means he probably can't be used tomorrow. You might as well go all in at that point, but that's just not something that Ollie Marmel has the luxury of doing in that spot. Not mid-June. If it's October, if it's a playoff game, you throw all hands on deck. Absolutely. Three-run game, you want to keep it 3-1 because you might be able to get a rally and then suddenly you're tied. I totally understand that. You just can't afford to use one of those three guys there. So if that's what you were calling for, I, I again, we're just going to have to agree to disagree because there's just no way on earth that that was going to happen. I've, I've been around the team long enough to see that that's just not something that they're going to do, and I happen to agree with it because I just don't think that, again, you never know how the future is going to play out, but I don't think that it's a wise move to throw arms at a game that is already kind of a losing cause. You've got to show a little bit of gumption on the offensive end first before you can dictate throwing in one of those valuable pieces that are there to preserve leads and guarantee that you're going to win the games you're supposed to win. The comeback efforts are reserved for the rest of the bullpen. Those guys are the ones that need to be able to come through. And I know that the middle relievers for this team have been a topic of conversation this year because they haven't been particularly good. And so that's, I think, where this conversation gets more interesting because if you were sitting there saying anybody but T.J. McFarland in the year of our Lord 2022, I would say, you know what, you've got a, you've got a pretty fair point. And I, I love T.J. McFarland. I would love for him to do well. It hasn't been his year, though. We've got to face the facts at some point. He has not had a good record with inherited runners coming around to score. In fact, he's near the top of the National League in allowing the most inherited runners to come around to score eventually 18 and this is CBS Sports using this stat, and I'm not as familiar with them as to whether they update day of or whether that's going to be a number that gets updated tomorrow and pushes him to 20. Nick Whitgren, by the way, tied for the lead, the lead in the league with 20, but he actually did his job today, came in for McFarland and did not allow McFarland's inherited runner to score. But by that point, it's 6-1. to one. And so you you throw in Nick Whitgren because it's you got to have somebody pitch. And you feel like, again, the game wasn't over at that point because, as the Cardinals showed, you can always mount a a rally and try and come back. But at that point, it doesn't really matter who you put in. You're just trying to mop up the innings and and see what you can get, see if you can't get lucky, see if you can't get something started offensively. But the moment when it's 3-1, to you could make an argument for somebody other than your your reliever with an ERA of 7. Last year, TJ McFarland and Luis Garcia would have been the first two guys you would think to go to in any situation with inherited runners. You're going to those guys, and they are going to be the firemen, and they're going to clean up the mess. It's 2022, though, and you got to look at what TJ McFarland's numbers have been this year doing that. They haven't been good. And so you might say, well, who else would you go to? I mean, the entire bullpen outside of the big three, it's been a, it's been a struggle, and you'd be right. But I think it's gotten to the point in this season for the Cardinals where you know, they're having a successful season. They're doing all right. They're above 500. Not quite 10 games anymore, but they're still in first place for now. But I think it gets to the point where don't continue to do the things that are are just clearly not working. And I know that TJ McFarland has had a couple of good outings in a row before today, before the mishap today, but look at the numbers on the season. His ERA was over seven still coming into this game. To me, and this is where I differ with the manager a little bit, in the post game, he explained himself very well as to why he made the decisions that he made. And he said, you know, if you go into that situation, Wainwright was at 96 pitches. 
if you leave Wainwright in for that batter, the one that began McFarland's outing, Jackie Bradley, I believe, was the batter there. If you leave in Wayno, you're leaving him in for the long haul because you don't want to then bring in McFarland at that point because you're going to have the three-batter minimum, and he's going to end up, if you get that far, having to face for the third batter, J.D. Martinez, against T.J. McFarland. J.D. Martinez is absolutely a matchup that you don't want for T.J. McFarland, which is what Ali Marmel said. He said, that's, you know, that's not what we wanted to do. So if we're, if we're going to do it, we got to do it now. And that makes perfect sense. And he says, what is TJ McFarland brought into that situation to do is to get a ground ball. And he did that. And so success on the first one, it just got through as ground balls tend to do. We've talked about that a lot with Dakota Hudson. Ground balls are going to get through sometimes on Hudson. And that's why he's going to have good days and bad days. And when the ground balls continue to sneak through and it's just kind of an unlucky day, they hit them where they ain't. That ain't going to be Dakota Hudson's day. That's just kind of the way it is. Doesn't mean he's not a good pitcher. But in that spot, T.J. McFarland, according to the manager, was brought in. He says, what was he brought in to do? Not to get a strikeout, but to get a ground ball. My thing with that is, and again, did he do his job in that aspect? Yeah, sure. Then the next one to Dalbeck, who got the double, scorched one, didn't do his job there. That you know, Not a good pitch, and so you don't like that. But then the two RBI hit by Devers, which was more of a chopper into left, yeah, that's a ground ball that most of the time you'll take, just a bad result. But you can still say, well, the, the Dalbeck pitch was a bad one, and, and he made him pay for it. And that contributed to the inning going even further south than it did, which, again, Dalbeck was a pinch hitter in that spot. And so you anticipate that they're going to be able to do that. They're going to go to a pinch hitter if they feel like they've got a matchup advantage. And against T.J. McFarland, you're going to have a matchup advantage if you can find a way to get a right-handed batter in against him, and you can sneak that in. That's going to be something the opposing manager should probably do all day long. And that's what happened there as they go to their bench in a situation where it's advantageous to do so, and they get a righty versus lefty matchup, which is kind of what you knew you had to avoid when it came to J.D. Martinez. He was four down the line, and so that was the explanation by Marmol to say, I, I couldn't wait any longer if you were arguing for Wainwright to stay in the game, which I don't know, 96 pitches, wasn't overly successful. It already given up three runs. At that point, you've got a runner on third base. You could let Wainwright have the rest of that inning. And I mean, if they do, if he gets up to 115 pitches and finishes that seventh inning doing so, it's possible that they don't end up having six runs at the end of it, Boston. Because, I don't know, Wainwright maybe doesn't give up multiple more. You know, it would have taken three more hits, right? At that point, that's what the Red Sox got. If you're counting all of McFarland's at-bats, if they'd given those to Wainwright, maybe it's a, a little bit of a different story. I don't know. But at that point, I'm not totally off with the decision to take Wainwright out of the game. That's fine. Go to your bullpen. But the way it was proposed by the manager was we had to do it there because we didn't want McFarland coming in any later than that. Okay, that's fine. But my thing is, why did you want McFarland coming in there regardless? Why did it have to be McFarland and not somebody else from your bullpen? I'm not saying Gallegos, Helsley, or Cabby. I'm not saying those guys. I guess Cabby is the one guy you could make an argument for if you were going to go big three because they thought they had an advantage based on the matchups. Clearly, they wanted the lefty in there because he was dead set. Oliver Marmel was dead set on McFarland, the way it sounds. Now, nobody said, hey, why did you go McFarland and not somebody different? But the way he described it was in the prism of it's going to be McFarland, and so 
here's why we did what we did. My thing is it doesn't have to be TJ McFarland in that spot, does it? His ERA was seven coming in. I know he was more of the fireman type last year, but Zach Thompson's out there, right? If you wanted to be a lefty, I think Zach Thompson needs to get more looks for that role. That's who I would have brought in for that situation if you're dead set on it's got to be a lefty. And you've got three lefties coming up, and so you figure, all right, maybe that's the way that the Cardinals are viewing it. Makes sense that they wanted to get their lefty in there. They can't view TJ McFarland anymore as that first lefty out of the bullpen to get the tough lefties out. I don't think anymore, because Raphael Devers, was he was the third batter. They knew that was going to be the case. And the way they approached that was, let's get TJ McFarland in there because he's going to face so-and-so lefty, so-and-so other lefty, and Devers, who was the third lefty. And so it makes sense on the surface why you'd want to go to your lefty. If it's got to be a lefty there, though, it does not have to be TJ McFarland. And that's where I disagree with it. I think Zach Thompson already should have elevated into that opportunity. I know he's unproven, but what we've seen McFarland prove is that he's not very good this year in those spots. And so I don't know why he's the choice anymore. I think enough time has elapsed. We've seen enough examples of it. Like I said, I know he's had decent outings recently. He had one game where he threw multiple innings, and that was great, but it was kind of a blowout at that point, if I recall. And so for me, McFarland, is he lost his job. He's lost his job to me as the guy who's automatically coming in when you know it's going to be a lefty. And then, you know, the opposing manager has the ability to bring in Dahlbeck anyway. And so he does. And that's a righty now. And so you've lost that advantage. And Rafael Devers is just a good hitter anyway. And so I don't care about the lefty-lefty in that situation. I'm probably going to take my shot with Devers. I feel good about that if I'm Boston. And so I think that's what it boils down to for me. If you wanted to be the lefty, that's fine. I'm going Zach Thompson there. I would have done it today, and I would do it moving forward. If it wasn't already the case, I think that should be I'm not saying DFA. Everybody's saying DFA, TJ McFarland. That's fine if that's the way you want to go. Wouldn't you think first, though, you would at least demote him within the hierarchy of the bullpen and see if he can't work his way back? Because we know last year he was excellent. And I'm not saying, like, again, I always talk about how relievers are fickle. And so it's possible that TJ McFarland comes back around the other way and is actually really effective for you the second half of the season. I'm not going to discount that possibility. But before I go throwing around the letters DFA, I'd like to throw around the notion of just demoting him to a lesser role within the bullpen for now and see if he can't work his way through some of that stuff. They have done that at certain times. He's been the guy for mop-up duty. That's happened before, and he's got a chance to throw some pitches and see what he can work on. That's great. But why does he then have to be thrust right back into the role of, and again, I'm not saying that this was the most high-leverage spot. I like that they didn't use any of the big three. I prefer that they didn't go to Henesis Cabrera as the lefty in that spot because you don't want to waste him in a game that you're probably not going to win anyway. I know in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, you scored four in the ninth. See, if you'd have done this, then you'd have won the game. Yeah, maybe. But that's butterfly effect. You don't really know what's going to happen. You don't know that you're going to have that rally. And it's not the playoffs right now, so you, I just don't think it's a, a wise choice to waste him there. And you say, well, it wouldn't be a waste. You would have won. I get it. We could go around in circles that way. I respect your opinion if that's how you're feeling about it. My thing would be, I'm staying away from the leverage guys in a 3-1 game that you're losing with a runner already on third less than two outs. That's just the way I'm going to approach it. So go with Zach Thompson if it's got to be a lefty. To me, doesn't really matter if it's a lefty because I know that the opposing manager is going to have an advantage if he wants it. Maybe you're that fearful of a righty facing Devers. That's a big difference. I can understand that. 
But my thing is, I, I, unless I'm missing something, I'm looking at the roster. Zach Thompson's still on this team, and he would have he been my choice. I know it's a spot that he hasn't really been in, but that would have been my preference. I think McFarland's got to be bumped into a lower tier. And if you don't feel like you've got anybody on the roster or in the organization that can be that lefty for you, you gotta you got to trade for one or you got to go find one somewhere. They found TJ McFarland off the scrap heap a year ago at this time. I think that's John Mozeliak's cue to have to do something. They cannot continue to have him be the first lefty in a situation where it's still a close game. Again, the first lefty is going to be Henesis Cabrera if you're in the lead. But then if your second lefty, the guy that you're going to use in a game that you're down by one or two or maybe even tied, depending on the inning, has an ERA of seven and a half, I don't think that's a uh, necessarily a winning recipe. So having a third lefty is great. They currently do Zach Thompson. To me, I don't want to reserve that guy for long duty. He doesn't need to be a three-inning guy in this bullpen. Let him have a crack at that role where he can come in and get you an inning, get you a couple of outs like, like would have been required in this situation. Has he proven it before? No, but you, the proven guy isn't really getting it done right now. So what does that prove? I don't think that you you do anything there to say, oh, well, he's proven. Well, it doesn't really feel very good if his ERA is seven this year and he's given up 18 inherited runners, maybe 20. We'll see if CBS updates tomorrow. That's my bad for not knowing that, but I normally look at baseball reference, MLB.com, and I know when they update theirs. I don't know about CBS. The other aspect of this for me, by the way, is that when Marmel said that he was brought in to get that ground ball, ground ball probably scores the run almost no matter what because there's a guy on third and one out. I'd be looking for the guy that can get the pop-up or can get the strikeout. He said he wasn't brought in to get the strikeout. Okay, Bring in a right-hander who maybe can get the strikeout. And maybe you don't have that guy in your bullpen. Maybe that's what it boils down to. I'm I'm dissecting a managerial decision in a game that probably was going to be a loss anyway, and so I need to step back and sort of recognize that. But I know that these are the things that people talk about and they're upset about because the Cardinals lost the game. And so I want to, I want to discuss it. But I don't want to ride the manager too hard because, by and large, I consistently think that Marmol does a great job. But in that case, I'm looking for the guy that can get me a strikeout. And if I don't have that guy then that sucks. <laughs> like, if he's looking there and say, no, Verhagen's not really a strikeout guy. Uh, Oviedo, could he get one? I don't want him facing three lefties. That's not a great look. Uh, should we do that? Nope, that's not good either. You know, you're kind of in a position. And I think it was, hierarchy was still, hey, that's TJ's spot. Zach Thompson, we're working him in. That's not his spot. My argument would be it should start to become his spot. And, and that should that should be a transition taking place right now. That should I would have done it today, and it should probably happen the next time you're in that spot. Down a run, down two runs, whatever. Close enough game, still trying to keep it there. But with the runner on third, a ground ball is good, but it, even a ground ball that stays on the infield could end up scoring that run. So, yeah, I, I would be looking for the strikeout in that spot, and Marmel said specifically he wasn't brought in to get a strikeout. It's a, it's a tough spot when Boston stacks three lefties in a row, and one of them's Devers, so you can't feel like, all right, it's fine. You know, you might just want to get the first two guys any way that you can. But that's kind of my thinking is that I'm looking for a strikeout guy if I've got one in my bullpen. And I've just read off some of the names that aren't Geo, Helsley, and Cabby. And there may not be a strikeout guy in that bunch. So that kind of explains a little bit further what Ollie Marmel's looking at. You just don't feel really, really confident in any of the guys that you've got outside of the main ones. And so that's a tricky spot to be in. But I, I, yes, I still contend that I would have gone a different route than McFarland there. And I'll be interested to see how they proceed from here. And so if you like breaking down ad nauseum, every little 
managerial move and decision, I guess today's podcast has been the podcast for you. And I know it maybe was a little bit overkill for some people, but I think this is something that it gets very easy when you go to Twitter or you go to social media and you complain or you vent some frustration and say, the manager sucks, he should have done this, should have done that. Totally support your right to do that. I think it's important, though, too, to sometimes step back and evaluate, okay, if not what happened, why not? And what should they have done instead? Or maybe the gut reaction of what you think they should have done. I want to come in here and say, well, here's my opinion on that. I don't think they could have. I don't think they could have gone to one of the main three guys out of the bullpen because you potentially risk not having them for a game that you actually have a better chance of winning. And so that's why I spent a pretty good portion of today's show breaking that down. But before we bid adieu, I do want to talk about that ninth inning rally that the Cardinals put together with two outs because that was impressive stuff. And that was a sign of a team that I think is going places. I think this Cardinals team has the makeup to be able to to make some noise this season. And I know people might turn around and with that little complaining voice that sometimes you like to use, which again, like I said, I, I defend your right to have it. You say, well, with, with those four runs, you know the Cardinals are capable of doing that. Why don't you more aggressively manage the bullpen in that seventh inning? Totally get it, but I just don't think you can go overboard with that. You don't want to go too far in the other direction and leave yourself thin, not just for the rest of this series, but the rest of this week and down the line by overusing guys in games that statistically you don't have a great chance to win. But let's talk about the Cardinals trying to defy the statistical odds as they so often seem to be able to do two outs and they got nothing going. Dylan Carlson starts it off with a double Harrison Bader triple. If you're watching the television broadcast, that's when Brad Thompson made what I thought was the most hilarious joke of the night. And he said, I don't know about salt Bay, but Harrison Bader peppered that one the opposite way. He and Danny Mac were having a good time about that one, but a couple of nice hits, well-struck ball, and then Kisner gets hit by the pitch. You don't really want to see that with, well, first of all, the fact that Yvonne Herrera wasn't even there until like the end of the game. I don't know how that happened, by the way. Katie Wu had the report about Yachty going on the injured list on the off day. She had that on Thursday night. And so the wheels were obviously in motion that that was going to happen. How does Yvonne Herrera not get to Boston in time for the game? I don't know how you messed that up unless there was, you know, you had some serious travel issues, flights canceled that were beyond the control of the Cardinals. They don't get him on a private jet. I mean, he's probably flying commercial to catch up with the team. And sometimes things happen, I guess. If you don't have a direct, you know, a direct route between two cities and then you end up having some issues there, I guess it's possible. It just seems beyond bizarre that an entire off day, they weren't able to anticipate a little bit that that was going to happen. They probably knew Wednesday that Yachty was going on the IL, I would think. Maybe not, but it had to have happened at some point Thursday. Anyway, I don't know how that was the case, but it was. So maybe a little concern there with, with Kiz getting hit with the pitch, but hopefully he ends up being okay. Obviously, obviously, he stayed in the game to run for himself and ended up scoring. Tommy Edmond with the double. Tommy Twobags makes an appearance. 6-3 Boston at that point. And then Brendan Donovan, really the reason we're bringing this up is BFD. Brendan Donovan makes you know, a great play to get the hit and the, you know, score the two runs. But then knowing that there's two outs in this inning and 
sometimes you never want to make the last out. I mean, always, you never want to make the last out of an inning on the bases. You definitely don't want to do it when it's the last out of the game. But Brendan Donovan says, I got to get in scoring position because if I do it, Goldie gets a base hit and we've tied this sucker up. So he's legging it out for a double. And he just makes the most incredible slides. I don't know how he continues to do it, but he's just a ball player. And they reviewed the slide at second base. And I saw it right away. I was pretty confident that they were not going to overturn this. And the fact that they confirmed it on the field means they had the camera angle they needed in replay to be able to, to see what I saw, which was that pretty damn sure that Brendan Donovan kept his finger on the base as he's sliding past it until he kind of contorts his body down until his thigh touches the bag. And that's the point at which he lets his finger off the bag. It, go back and watch that slide if you have access or can find it somewhere. Bally may have tweeted it out. Just a ridiculous slide by Brendan Donovan. So he that's just goes to show he continues to do things that make this team better. He's a really good player, and he's gonna, he's not going anywhere. He may not be a starter every day for the next five years, but he's going to be on this roster. He's a really, really good player and a winning player for sure. Let's get into it, though. Then it was Paul Goldschmidt, and you would say, well, there's nobody I'd rather have on the mound. Paul Goldschmidt taking on Tanner Houck, the I don't know that he's Boston's closer, but in that spot he was. And the Mizzou guy was really interesting at bat and ends up going to a full count. Goldie swung and missed at a couple sliders away that made me think, boy, he's got the beat on. Tanner Houck has got the beat on Goldsmith, which often has not happened over the last six weeks or so because Goldie's been on an absolute tear. Really, it's been about the last two months. April 22nd is when Goldsmith started to really turn it on. That was the beginning of the stretch that he's on right now. And I'm thinking, man, I'm going slider away if I'm if I'm Tanner Houck right here. And he ends up going fastball in, busts him in at 96. And that kind of brushes Goldie back. And he had a little bit of room to play with at that point because I don't think it was it was not obviously a three-ball count yet. And then I think he went 84 inside. I don't know if that was a, a missed pitch that kind of backed up on him or what he was looking to do there. But I just kept thinking, slider away, slider away. Goldie's got to find a way to stay on it. And then he threw it. It was a slider, but he left it over the plate. 85, and that was probably the pitch you got to crush if you're Goldie. And I think at that point, Hauk got a little bit, and I didn't notice whether maybe they called for the slider again on the final pitch of the game and he shook him off, or if the catcher decided, no, we're going fastball here. I think it's a sinker for Hauk. But it was at 96, the hardest pitch I I saw him throw in the at-bat. So whatever it was, it was a version of his fastball. One that he certainly throws with some confidence there because 3-2 count, game's sort of on the line in that moment. And I'm thinking for sure he's going to bust him again. He's going to throw that slider away. He missed slider away because he left it over the plate and Goldie didn't punish him for it. He fouled it off the previous pitch. And then just an absolute freeze job on Goldschmidt where like people say, how can you let that pitch go by? And I totally agree. I get it. But watching it live, I'm thinking it has to be a slider away. It has to be. And so that, to me, that has to be what Goldie was thinking as well, which explains why he just stood there looking at 96 right down the gut. It was a good pitch. It was a gutsy pitch to throw in that moment because if Goldie's on it, I think he can crush it. It was a pretty good location. How kept the bottom of the zone pretty well. But again, if you're thinking, all right, I'm looking for a pitch to drive over the middle, over the heart of the plate, that was going to be it. But at 96, that's just a tough pitch. It's a really good pitch. And gutsy to throw it in that spot because I thought, man, you don't want to put Goldie on. Arenado's already homered today. Although at the beginning of the at-bat, I thought, I don't want to 
I get Arenado's homer. I don't want to face Goldie right now. I I would maybe consider putting him on. But now that you've got two strikes, you're one away from doing it. You could throw a slider out of the zone and hope that he chases it again because he had done so twice. And I think maybe in that moment he might have done it again. But it was pretty gutsy and ended up working out really well for Boston to throw that that sinker, that fastball, 96, right over the middle of the plate. Really interesting stuff. It turns into a guessing game at that point. I thought that last at-bat was really fascinating to watch unfold because you're sitting there at home guessing along with it to see maybe what they might do there. And there's nobody in the world you'd rather have up at the plate, I think, in that spot than Paul Goldschmidt. And sometimes it just doesn't pan out. That is the way it shakes out for the Cardinals in this one. They lose 6-5 to five to the Boston Red Sox in Game 1. Disappointing considering that you had Wainwright on the mound to begin with, and that's a guy that you, you want to be able to win his starts when you can. Disappointing that Yachty couldn't catch it, right? That's not something you see very often. I guess we should mention Yachty on the injured list. Like, I talked about it in reference to her having Herrera and Kisner, but I didn't really do anything on the podcast about Yachty. Yeah, he's on the injured list right now. No, it's not because he just got hurt. It's because his knees have been hurt all season. They're sore. He's 39 years old. He's got a lot of mileage on that body, and it's catching up to him, inevitably. I think you've started to see that with Kisner taking more of the load as the season has gone, and I think this really explains, as you can go back on the B-Shape Daily Feed, talked a little bit about it with my co-host on the big show, Andy Humphrey, about why did Ali Marmol go after Andrew Kisner the way he did the other day in the press conference saying that we need to have better at-bats from Kiz. When he was asked about the catcher position in general, he said, need to see more from Andrew Kisner. And it's like, well, Yachty's there too. I guess you're not going to call out the veteran. Well, this really adds context to that, doesn't it? They know what Yachty's been going through. He had cortisone shots last weekend, according to Katie Wu, and had to take a couple of days off, and then he gets back into the lineup. You know, like those were the things that were going on behind the scenes. They're not looking to call out Yachty. They're just looking for Yachty to get through the season, man, at this point. And Yachty, I did see what Katie wrote about in her article, breaking the news on the IL stint. I saw this Wednesday night that Yachty was sitting at his locker, full uniform, just kind of staring into it, back to the rest of the room. And normally he's out of there. He's a guy that he gets going, and I think he was kind of, you know, I don't know if that's dejected or if that's just a realization that, man, this is I'm in a tough way right now with the knees and I don't know if I can keep playing through this right now. They had just tried the quarter zone, and he'd played a couple of games this week after getting the rest that he needed after the shots, and clearly it's not resolving the issue. So hopefully for him, some rest, some recuperation will, I'm not going to say resolve the issue, but hopefully it can at least keep the knee soreness at bay a little bit, allowing him to finish this, this season. Nine more starts to pass Freehand and Lovelich for the record for the battery. That's a big Storyline this season, obviously. Yeah, I think moving forward, the Cardinals are going to have to see more from Andrew Kisner. I think during this stretch that Yachty is out, you got to see what Ivan Herrera can do. He's been recalled. I'm giving him starts. I'm giving him at least one start a series because I want to see what he can do offensively. Because you've got a question of not only this year, of can you get some production offensively from that catcher spot? Yachty hasn't been doing a whole lot. Kisner has not either. Was hitting 198 coming into tonight. Just hasn't been able to get it done very much offensively and ended up going one for or pardon me, 0 for three with a with a hit by pitch, but 0 for three, so a 192 batting average now for Kiz. Just hasn't been able to get it done. So can Herrera, his his OPS in the triple A level at Memphis is 824 this year. That's pretty good. Uh, does it translate? What does that equal though when he gets into major league at bats on the regular basis? 
750, 725, 700. Kiz right now is at 532. So if this kid's ready to handle the, the pitching staff and he's ready to show what he can do with the bat a little bit, you got to give him a chance. And then that'll kind of color, I think, the way they go with the catcher spot next year, which is not the most important thing in the world right now. Right now, it's just winning baseball games in 2022. But it is a kind of interesting storyline to look ahead toward. Could it be a 60-40 split, 70-30 split, but Ivan Herrera ends up taking the lion's share and Kisner remains the backup? But just a, a more enhanced backup than in Yadier Molina years. Maybe that's what it looks like. But you got to see what Herrera can do. It doesn't really do you a lot of good right now to just kind of keep him around but have him be the backup to Kisner and never play. I still am a person who believes in Andrew Kisner, but I want to see more Herrera these next couple of weeks as well. And hopefully Yachty's able to make it back. And then it's a question of when he does make it back, is it to catch Adam Wainwright and not much else? Or is he going to be able to take on at least 50% of the workload with Andrew Kisner? I don't know. He's turning 40 in July, Yadier Molina is, and Father Time is undefeated. And we're seeing that a little bit this year with Yadi. So hopefully he's able to recuperate and find a little bit of spryness for those knees as he moves forward. But man, I I feel for the guy because he his whole entire heart is in this, and sometimes your body just does not cooperate, and that's what Yadi appears to be going through right now. So I, I wanted to at least make sure I touched on that a little bit since we had not talked about it yet with that news coming down the pike on Thursday night and then becoming official on Friday morning. But as I was kind of saying before I did go on that little Yachty tangent because it was worth talking about, disappointing to lose the Wainwright start. You didn't end up getting the job done with him on the mound. He's kind of your ace right now, and so that's unfortunate. Now they're going to have to see what they can do behind Dakota Hudson on Saturday. Dakota's going to get the ball. He's been pretty good lately. I think he deserves some credit for the way he's turned things around after kind of some rough going earlier in the season. His last start, maybe not as good. The ERA now is above 3.29, and so it's going to be a question of, I shouldn't say above, his ERA is at 3.29, but prior to his last outing, it was below three, and he had been on a pretty good trajectory. Remember, the last outing was that he gave up the six runs, but he still went seven innings. That was one that kind of strangely got away from him late as well. Some extenuating circumstances, just one of those games, like I mentioned a little bit ago, talking about McFarland getting the ground ball. Sometimes Dakota is going to get all the ground balls his heart could desire, and those turn into nine hits and six runs. That's what happened to him in his last outing against the Reds on June 12th. Take another turn here in Boston. Hopefully he's able to kind of tap back into the type of outings he was having previously, maybe get that ERA a little bit closer to two or in the twos, rather, because it was 2.76, now 3.29. Maybe he can get it back down a little bit. His FIP, his fielding independent pitching, actually went down in his last start. That's how you know he had some bad luck with the ground balls. 4.24 was his FIP, which is sort of what your expected ERA would be if you took out defense, is the the simplest way to explain that. And Maybe that's not quite accurate, but that's essentially what they're looking at. And the ERA was 2.76. The FIP was a run and a half higher at 4.24. Last outing gave up six runs. ERA goes shooting up. The FIP actually went down to 4.20 from 4.24. So he basically did his job and had some bad luck in the last game is kind of the way that breaks down. Didn't get very many strikeouts. That hurts you a little bit. But I'll be interested to see what Dakota is able to do on Saturday. And if the Cardinals can uh, try and even this series up before going for 
the win on Sunday. And that's going to be Andre Pallante's game. Appreciate you guys, though, as always, for listening. That is going to do it for this edition of B-Shape Daily. You know how to subscribe. You know what to do. Go get it done. We'll talk to you later. I appreciate you guys, and we'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace out.